and we are live hello hello everyone and welcome to another episode of strong tea i'm vicky and i'm katie and together we make up strong tea and quick brew so if you haven't joined us before strong tea is our series where we explore the things that sometimes considered taboo the things that we sometimes find difficult to talk about and things that myself and Katie really feel we need to be uh, more educated on we need to learn more about as well as talking about in society and and amongst ourselves um if you want to join us uh with just me and Katie we have quick brews where we still talk about things that are taboo but it's just me and Katie really talking and yakking between ourselves I think is pretty much an accurate chewing the fat Doing the fat, that's right. But with Strong Teas, um, we have incredibly inspiring and wonderful guests. And today is no different, but I'll wait for Katie to introduce our fantastic guests for today. But what's really important is what are we drinking? Marianne, as our guest, you go first. What are you drinking? I am drinking a reasonably strong cup of tea. My mother would say it's very weak. My <laughs> husband would say it's very strong. So I'm, I'm not going to... It is... I would say it's a good taupe-shaded colour. Nice. Oh, and, is it builder's tea? It's got a little bit of scum on the top. And yes, it is It is. Um, it is English breakfast. English Excellent. Breakfast, for his own English breakfast. Sign of a well-used it, kettle. Yes. Yeah, is it <laughs> a proper... London water. And so it's, it's not a proper brew if it doesn't have kind of a film over the top, is yeah, it? Yeah, no, there's, there's a proper skin that I could remove, but I'm just going to stir it in. Nice. <laughs> Nice, I love it. That's a that's a proper hardcore tea drinker, isn't it? That's like you yeah. used to drinking tea, polystyrene cup out of like yeah. you know one of those takeaway places. Yeah, take it as yeah. it comes. Yeah, if I were from another country, I would say that I'm disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? I love that. <laughs> I have gone today and I've got to give a shout out to my mother-in-law because she heard one of our podcasts and the fact that I said no one ever buys me tea and she went off and she bought me tea and it's from an amazing company called T2, tea Mm. and the number two and this is New York breakfast tea which is like a breakfast tea but it has a hint of flavoring of pancakes. So you've been raving about this tea. You never said it tasted like pancakes. Well, do you know what? I, I was like, oh, it's got like a vanilla-y flavour to it. And I was like, that's really nice. That, that tastes like something. And in preparation for today, I thought I'd read the box and see what it said. And it says, a boasts flavouring of New York pancakes. And I was like, that's it. That's what it tastes like. So, yeah. Oh, I'm going to steal some of those bad boys. Yeah, that's fine. I will share with you. That's not a problem. What are you drinking? I am drinking Twinings. Other brands are available. Um, Chamomile tea. Um, Yeah, because it's it's calming. And I think I'm going to need calm for today's topic. um, (laughs) Because this is something that's very close to our hearts. And yeah, I cannot wait to get into this. Yes. And without further ado, I think we should. I think Freddie's going to probably have something to say as we go through. So if you can hear him squawking in the background, that's what that is. Um, But without further ado, I'd like to introduce everyone to our wonderful, wonderful guest today. We are joined by the fantastic Marianne Levy. She's the author of a wonderful book that we're going to be talking about today. But uh, you may be familiar with Marianne. She has uh, written several children's books and she's also a journalist and has appeared in The Independent, The Guardian, Financial Times. And she also writes um, features and book reviews for the I newspaper. Um, But today... What we are going to be talking about is her wonderful book, Don't Forget to Scream, which is the unspoken truths about motherhood. And I found about out about this book when my husband sent me an article that I think was in the Times. Um, and it was lots of little snippets out of this book. And I read it where Freddie was maybe about four weeks old. And I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is so relatable. And I thought, I, I, I have to get this book. So I ordered the book. I ordered a copy for Vicky and I uh, then stalked Marianne on social media until <laughs> I can get hold of her. <laughs> and she joins us today. So Marianne, without further ado, please um, just tell us a little bit about your story and what inspired you to write this book. Um, oh gosh, sorry, my computer's making a noise. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and I... T- so what inspired me to write it? it? It didn't happen in the way that a book would normally happen. I think that that's the, the first thing I should say about it. Um, so when I had my daughter, um, and she's now 
eight, um, eight and a half. Um, I had a really rough birth, um, fairly rough pregnancy. Um, and afterwards, I was very poleaxed, I think, by the experience of being a new mother. Um, and I found it very, very hard to talk about, um, even to the point where when I came home from the hospital, having had this you know, awful five day long experience of labor, um, I remember sort of set, trying to tell people what had happened to me in the way that previously to becoming a mother, I might have described any difficult, um, intense experience. And for the first time in my life, I found that people didn't want to listen. They found it too hard. Um, so people would sort of cut me off or they'd say, oh, but, you know, your daughter's worth it. Right. That was when I heard a lot. Oh, she's worth it. Or, oh, this is just what happens. You're a mum now. And then I had a, a, a difficult first few months and even years with my daughter and other difficult things happened in mine and my husband's life. And all that time, I felt that I could speak about it less and less and less. And the more I tried to articulate it, the more people would shut me down. And then four years after that, I had my little boy. Um, and I, for whatever reason, I found I couldn't keep that level of silence anymore. So two weeks after he was born, I wrote a very, very short little piece um, about just how I was feeling. And I put it online and it was, I think as much as anything else, a way of answering people's questions as to how I was, because I didn't feel like I could do it in conversation. But for some reason on the page, I did feel like I could be honest. And I didn't, I, I could, you know, I wasn't interrupted as I was writing it. I could sort of get to the end of what I wanted to say. And, you know, whether people read it to the end or not, that, that wasn't so much the point. I could at least say what I, what I was feeling. And I put it online without any particular expectations of what would happen. It was, ju it was just, I wanted to, to be honest. And it went crazy um, in a way that I wasn't expecting. I'm not huge on social media, but I had you know, so many responses and people sort of 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the line saying, oh my goodness, this, this brings me right back to those early days. Um, and, it, and it seems to really resonate with people. And then a few weeks later, I wrote, another piece called The Mothers. Um, both of these pieces, Two Weeks and The Mothers, end up in the book. And that was a sort of more general piece about the silencing of mothers and how invisible I felt um, to the rest of society, to you know people who had previously seen me, friends and family. I, I felt like I couldn't be seen anymore. Now that I had a baby, now that I had the buggy, I sort of felt myself kind of disappearing and my narrative disappearing. And so from there, and again, that had a huge response, I should say, again, unexpectedly huge. And then from there, I would write the occasional piece. Every now and then when something occurred to me, I'd write these sort of short, raw little pieces. And I wrote a couple during the pandemic. So the pandemic then happened and I wrote a couple of pieces for the I newspaper. Um, one of them very early on, um, before the impact of the pandemic on mothers had really been recognized, I think it was April, 2020, I wrote a piece about how I felt like I was a surrendered wife because I was doing all the childcare. Suddenly I had to you know, give up any, any form of work um, to homeschool the children. And then I was approached by an editor who said, would you consider putting this into a book? Um, so that's, so I never set out to write a book at the beginning. I was more setting out to, capture the truth of my experiences in a way that I felt I couldn't in conversation with people but that that's where it came from your book is I mean it's incredibly honest and it's and it's so open and so raw and it's just a fantastic set of experiences and it, it's a real mix it's kind of laugh out loud some of it is extremely sad some of it is just so raw that it just absolutely spoke from it, it just spoke to me every there were things in that book that I just thought oh my goodness that yeah I, I couldn't have articulated it but you did in that book and I suspect it re it resonates according with the responses that you got initially it it's resonates with a lot of mums how did it actually feel writing it 
Um, sometimes it was very hard. Um, there's particular chapters that I you, you sort of had to relive certain experiences or get angry all over again in order to write them. Sometimes it was very cathartic. Um, one thing I think I'm very lucky in that I have an editor I really trust. And so one of the nice things is that some of the more difficult passages um, I felt very seen in a way that perhaps I hadn't. So for example, I mean, there's a bit in the book where I talk about meeting my son for the first time and he was very ill when he was born. Um, he had breathing problems and he ended up in neonatal intensive care in the NICU. And because I was having a cesarean section, what it meant was that he, they put him on my chest and then they immediately took him away. And so several hours later, I was sort of wheeled up to go and see him. And when I went into the NICU in my wheelchair, I went to the wrong cot. I saw a dark haired baby and I remembered my baby was dark haired. And so I said, oh, hello. Um, and then this neonatal intensive care nurse, in my memory, she slid out of the shadows and she said, that's the wrong baby. Your baby's this baby. And I'd always told it as a funny story because it is, it mm. is funny. But when I wrote it, I remember sending the first ever draft of it to my editor and she wrote in the margin in her notes, I'm so sorry this happened to you. And I had this moment when I read that notice, oh my God, yes, that was awful. That was a really terrible <laughs> thing. That was the moment I thought I was you know, properly meeting my baby and I met the wrong, but, you know, this, this was awful. So I felt very seen and very recognized. And that was very useful, I think, going forwards to kind of complete the book and to take ownership of the experiences um but yeah it, it was hard it was hard there were times it was very hard I felt quite I mean am I allowed to swear on this podcast yes yeah oh, okay yeah. I'm good well no I think the phrase I used to someone when I was talking about I felt quite ambiently shitty for several months while I was writing it and I realized it was just because I was going through all this very difficult stuff again um so yeah it was hard it was hard that's a beautiful description <laughs> You, you. If you listen to any more episodes, I, I bet it will pop up on here. <laughs> <laughs> shitty. I don't to you. I think um, what you talked about. Something that really resonated with me in the book is where you talk about. You know, you you talk about your difficult birth with your daughter, mm. and how people didn't want to listen. No. And you know, it resonated with me because obviously, you know, very different circumstances. But my daughter died, um, oh, and the the birth that I had with her. I found very difficult, you know, when people would be talking about certain forms of birth and things like that. And I felt, you know, compelled sometimes to sort of, I wanted to talk, so uh, that therapy, you talk about writing, I wanted to talk about my experience, mm. but that the way you write it in the book talks about how the fear can spread yeah. and how about, and it, I had never thought about it before, but you talk about when you have that seed in your mind about how if you fear birth, it will hurt more anyway because it yeah. blocks the the hormones that are supposed to be coming through to help make things easy. And I was brainwashed into being told with my birth and my daughter, your body will know what to do. Mm. And that was pushed on me and pushed on me and pushed on me. And so I went in thinking that. And it was so horrifically the opposite mm. that I think you know, women do need to talk about their birth stories more. And I think there's such a taboo behind it because, you know, people shut down people who are pregnant. They're like, you know, I don't want to hear about that. I don't want to hear about the bad things. Why do you think it's such a taboo in society for people to not be able to talk about something which is so natural, which half of our population experience? I think, I think it's very complicated and I don't necessarily have answers to any of it because because everybody's birth is so different and so personal I suppose the thing that I, I was talking I was talking about this with a with a doctor friend um, when I was writing that particular chapter and she said something that I found quite useful actually she said that 100, 200 years ago, people's fear would have been more widely acknowledged because childbirth was a more openly recognized dangerous thing because, you know, we didn't have forceps, we didn't have, you know, 
safe cesarean sections. Um, and now, because it happens in hospitals and it's sort of shut away, it doesn't happen at home so much, you know, not routinely as it, as it once would have done. And because the outcome is not so often maternal death as it would have been historically, you know, there's fairly scary stats when you look back um, just when birth went wrong and, and we don't have those anymore. And therefore what actually happens when people give birth goes on in a very hidden way and a sort of very sanitized to the rest of society way. And I think that creates a kind of aura of mystery around the whole process that means that then when people do talk about their birth, it then becomes startlingly, you sort of go from this sort of general sense of mystery to something very startlingly specific. And we don't actually have very much that's in between, which is what we need. We, we need just more general discussion. And then within the context of general discussion, one single person's birth experience wouldn't necessarily have the power to absolutely terrify the listener because they'd be able to contextualize it. But at the moment we have no general context for this kind of discussion which I think is, is difficult and then puts a huge burden on the teller and a huge burden on the listener. Um, you know, I don't know that, I, I was scared to talk about it with people because I didn't want to terrify them and because it wouldn't necessarily be relevant to their experiences. The difficulty then is who do you talk about it to? Mm. And I found that yeah. very hard and I don't necessarily have the answer. I mean, the other thing I would say is that birth experiences generally would be better if it was a better funded system. Um, one thing that I sort of noted it, the difference between my first and second births and you know my second birth was theoretically a lot more difficult and scary than my first birth in that it was a c-section and I had lots of infections afterwards I had a pretty rough time during the section my little boy ended up in the NICU nonetheless it didn't traumatize me in the way it did my first birth because I was being looked after all the way through and I was being monitored all the way through whereas in my first birth I was very much left to get on with it on my own and if we had better funding if we had better continuity of care a lot of those very traumatic experiences people would be able to make better sense of and be able to work through in a way that I think people are often not able to um that's a very long-winded answer. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I even answered the question. I don't, I don't know that there is a simple answer. No. But I think there are definitely things that we can do that would help. Yeah, no, and I, I, I understand where you're coming from. Like you said, there is no, there is no straightforward answer because everyone's birth experience is mm. different. Um, I wonder. Oh, actually, actually, no, I, there was one other thing I wanted to say. I struggle with the moral dimension of women's pain. That I struggle with. And again, I don't know that there's necessarily an answer, but I know that people who, you know, say, oh, I'm so proud of myself because I went through my birth without pain relief. I, I suffered in order to have this baby. I, I'm so proud of myself that I had my baby vaginally. Mm. And I think, well, I didn't. I had to have an epidural, my baby got stuck. I had to have yeah. forceps. And the flip side of saying you're proud of yourself, which I think people are perfectly entitled to say, but the, the problem is that the flip side of that is I think, well, I, I deserve to be ashamed and I do feel ashamed. And again, I don't know what the answer is because I don't want to take away from people's sense of pride and people's sense of ownership of their birth experiences. But the flip side is shame for many, many women. It certainly was shame for me and that's worth, remembering I suppose if nothing else when people are talking about their good births it's worth remembering that your listener may not have had the same mm. experience um and that the birth is somehow indicative of your wider character I, mm. I find that very hard that I'm anxious and nervy and I didn't trust my body and therefore I deserved in some way this character flaw that I wasn't enough of a kind of earth mother connected yogic that I therefore didn't yeah. deserve a good birth and again, I think, well, it's just my character. I, there's, there's only so much you can do. To, you can't change the very essence of who you are in the nine mm -hmm. months that you're pregnant while also making a baby. It's a lot to ask of women. And yeah. I find that hard. And you wouldn't say to somebody who had a crappy time at the dentist, well, you know, <laughs> you just don't, 
you you shouldn't be proud of you and your team you know it's, it's, yeah. An odd, yeah it's an odd it's, and yet and yes I do understand that people work very hard to get their good birds and they do do the breathing and the mindset yeah. and so it, it's very hard and I don't have the answers but I do know the damage that it can cause sorry now now we can carry on yeah. no I, because interesting enough what you were saying there's a that I do find and funnily enough I was talking to a couple of friends about this the other day about the toxic positivity yeah. behind things like cesarean sections and um after a traumatic experience first time I opted for a c-section the second time and the first time I wanted to give birth I wanted a c-section and the mm. doctors told me no yeah. and that whole posh to push mentality it's like no I actually have a, a a real fear of labor which is incredibly common which I didn't realize there was actually a mm. phobia phobia of it mm. and the toxic positivity behind it and I, I think especially as well between women you know mm. there's a sort of judgment that goes on if you've like you say you've you know you've spent 12 hours and you've not had any pain relief and you've pushed your child out that you should be more proud than if you've done it you know through a c-section but people don't know the reasons you've gone through c-section and I think there's there's a whole um array of feeling against women that have had c-sections and not done things naturally and I think that needs to stop I think that's incredibly toxic and I hope I hope that it is on the way out. I mean, I, you know, they have changed the guidelines. Um, they have changed the what constitutes a normal birth. So I'm hoping that the language, at least that the medical profession use around these experiences, will filter out into society. Um, I hope so. And 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 the other thing that I, the bar, for me is set in the wrong place. That you know, that a good outcome for a birth is a mother and a baby, and they're both alive, and that to me feels like a very low bar. That yeah. a good outcome for a birth is a mother and a baby who are alive and feel nurtured and supported and yeah. ready to start the journey of looking after a newborn that's the outcome that we should be looking for what, what, however however that birth transpires I think as well there's something about respecting birth trauma so if you know not not basically saying that the mother because she's been through trauma and she's still coming to terms with it that she's going to be a bad mom as well mm. it's like you've been through something horrendous that doesn't mean you're not going to love your baby just because it was a traumatic because I, I had um Ellie got stuck and I had to have an episiotomy and forceps and yeah. um epidural the, the works and it was it was traumatic it, it was it wasn't very pleasant um, but it doesn't mean I loved her any less, even though the recovery was quite brutal. Yeah. Um, and that's another thing as well, that the, the recovery isn't talked about either. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. the, what happens to the body. And I know you explore that and don't forget to scream as well. What actually you know, in the flesh and, and blood uh, chapter where you actually yeah. talk about what happens to the body after birth and just how flipping difficult that that is. But again, and how invisible no it is. Absolutely invisible, I think. Mm that everybody looks at the lovely baby, this beautiful, new, fresh baby, and the rest of it, because it's unseen, isn't talked about. And I found, you know, this sort of sense that I had to be up and about and performing motherhood. Yeah. You know, after this exhausting, you know, five-day labour and an episiotomy and forceps. And, I mean, I, I don't talk about it in the book specifically, but what ended up happening is that when I was at um, the end of my labor, so at sort of nine centimeters dilation, I got left in a room um, for several hours because there was nobody free to perform the forceps delivery because they kept, the, the um, doctors kept getting paged to theater to perform more emergency, um, bigger emergencies. And, you know, that, that, was not good for me physically <laughs> it's not good to have a baby in your birth canal <laughs> nine centimeters dilation for yeah. several hours and then a forceps delivery but I, I could see no way of communicating that to people that I was you know in a real mess because they couldn't see it and if I'd had a broken arm they would have been able to see it and because it's your bits 
you know, men didn't want to know about that. Whereas if I'd come in with a limp and on crutches, I would have been looked after. And I've, I've, I was not looked after. And I didn't, I didn't have the language to say mm. to people, please help me. And when I tried, people couldn't hear. And it's the shame that goes with it as well. So I remember I had to sit on one of those donut things yeah. um, for, for weeks and weeks. And then I got an infection and, you know, just the whole feeling rubbish in yourself like not that you going back to what you said about you didn't do a particularly good job did you because you know you allowed her to get stuck you you know you had to have this you know your body was you often obviously wasn't ready for it but it's the whole embarrassment afterwards and you shouldn't be embarrassed you know you've your body has been through something extremely traumatic so why should I feel ashamed that I have to bring my donut out in, in a coffee shop yeah. just to have a coffee and just chill out yeah yeah and I, I I the shame is a huge part of early motherhood and that makes me feel very sad I I, yeah. I, I, I feel very sad because I'm and also I I'm very lucky I'm a middle-class white woman I hadn't had public shame before in that way and I, I didn't you know it was the first time I'd sort of thought oh hang on I mean yeah and and I, you know, I'm aware of my huge privilege coming to all of this and coming to the writing of it. I found it very difficult. Do you find, I mean, one thing that you talk about in your book about um, friends of friends who lost babies and mm. went through, sorry, it's very loud, um, went through uh, traumas and had difficult birthing experience and things like that. I often, I often feel guilty when I find things hard and I say, you know, and I, you don't, I know you talk about it in your book as well. And I'm, you know, I'm like, oh, I can't, I don't feel like I can say how hard I'm finding it mm. because there are people out there who aren't as lucky as me. Yeah. And I have been on both ends of the spectrum. And when I lost Poppy, people were saying, oh God, you know, I can't sleep because this baby's keeping me awake. And I'm like, well, at least you've got a damn baby, mm. you know? And I saw it from that side. Now I see it from the other side and I almost feel like I can't say I'm finding this hard and I know the two aren't mutually exclusive mm. but it's so hard isn't it for mums to speak out and you sort of feel these little pockets I talk to other mums and just one-on-one -on -one and I say you know I'm, I'm really struggling with this and they're like oh yeah me too or yeah I remember that or you know that's totally natural everyone does that but no one talks about it on the big stage of things and I know when we talked to you to start with when we had our initial chat and we said what's been the feedback from the book and you said that you had some real, really quite harsh feedback from it. Can you oh, tell yes. me a little bit more about that? Oh, yes. Um, to be fair, these weren't people who'd read the book, <laughs> I should say, immediately. <laughs> well, actually, you know, some of them had read it in the Sunday Times. They weren't, they're not readers who bought the book. Um, when I, so when it came out, so the Sunday Times um, serialised it. They published three and a half thousand words. And I was braced so so therefore it went to people who wouldn't necessarily have sought it out which I should immediately say is my dream because mm. the one thing I want is I want to open up these conversations yeah. to wider society I want to open it up to men I want to open it up to people who haven't had and maybe will never have children I, I feel that these are societal issues they're not yeah. issues for women of a certain age and breeding status um having said that when it gets tweeted to 1.5 million people or whatever the vast number of people it is who um, are on the Sunday Times Twitter feed and they pull out little bits and stuck picture of my um, worried looking face over some little snippet, I got some fairly vile stuff. Um, I got people saying, you know, you shouldn't have had a baby, you what you just shut up that's a lot of that I'd also have that I was on Radio 5 Live and somebody phoned in and said that um I made them ashamed to be a woman um what's this woman come on the radio just to moan I had when I went on Times Radio um so it's interesting and actually quite validating because I feel like I spend a lot of time saying people don't want to hear this people find it difficult people don't want to listen and everyone sort of goes oh but I, I thought I listened oh I thought I was and actually you want to go well no you have this stuff in you too everyone 
to an extent has this stuff because hard conversations are hard as mm. you're sort of saying when you're talking about your your losing poppy people find this stuff difficult to deal with and their instinctive reactions are often not very pleasant and so it's quite useful for me as a writer and as someone who's gone through this to actually see it on the page or to hear it said so I go okay it's not in my head people people do find this hard they don't like it and those of us with maybe less filters in place or less empathy have no problem in articulating that but I feel a lot of people do think that stuff even if they don't say it so it's how to balance that and say no I'm still going to speak because I think this is important and and I can balance it and I can also and at the same time as people were saying this woman doesn't deserve to have a baby somebody else sent me I, I didn't look at the comments underneath the piece in the Sunday Times because it was it was just pre-publication and I I felt as though it wouldn't be helpful um, but a friend um very nicely cut and pasted some of them and put them in an email and one person said this is the best thing the Sunday Times has published in my 30 years of reading it and I think okay well there's that too yeah I think I think even there are probably a lot of women out there that will read this book but will still be too afraid to say yeah I get it because there are bits in the book that I read and I thought no that's not me but I can see how women experience it and there Mm -hmm. are other bits that I was just like oh my god that is that's exactly how I'm feeling Mm -hmm. but I would be too afraid to talk about it so I I do think you're giving were they I'm fascinated as to which bits if you don't mind talking about it I'm I'm very interested because I I never I mean I I don't presume it's called unspoken truths about motherhood I would never presume to speak for all mothers all I can say is that by detailing in being as specific as possible Mm. people will find things that resonate or find things that they can therefore understand in somebody else um and know what yeah but yes tell me tell me which which bits that you you didn't find resonated because I'm 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 really interested one bit yeah so one bit that just hit me to my core and I, I I was laying in bed and I remember it around I'm reading it and I just I had to put the book down and kind of take a moment um <laughs> Sorry. and it was no no not in a good way and mm. it was um it's the chapter called health and safety oh yeah. and in particular the bit um intrusive thoughts yeah and um, I, I know some people who had to stop reading and that bit and kind of put the book in. Put the book. Do you remember just, in Friends when um, Joey finds um, a book too upsetting and he hides it in the freezer? Oh, yeah. <laughs> put the book in the freezer for a bit and then go and get it back again. <laughs> I think it was because I have those thoughts mm. and, you know, almost how dare you put it in paper because you've seen me, you wonderful human. Oh, like. Yeah. How- <laughs> Oh, so it did resonate. I thought it didn't resonate. Yeah. Oh, no, no, just, no, 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 no. It, it, it really did. If I am. Um, so I'll, I'll read a short passage. So those then were the thoughts that lay within my control. So you've talked about all the um, having the baby and, you know, all, all the, the things you do to look after them. And there are those. Then there were those that prowled the edges of my consciousness. When the wailing got too loud, the nights too long, when I forgot to eat, or sometimes for no discernible reason, they would rise, unfurling to impossible heights. I would imagine cradling my daughter against my chest and then hurling her from the window. I could almost see the brokenness of her body on the stone below, holding her head down in the bath, the expression in her eyes as her fingers clawed the water. Sometimes I would see myself place a pillow over her screaming face, watching impassive until the waving of her legs slowed and fell still. I don't, I didn't want to hurt my baby. Of course I didn't. Every cell of my being was working harder than I thought possible to keep her happy and safe. So why did my mind keep showing me these images? That, that is exactly what I was unable to talk to any of my friends about, that I have these images in my head and A, I don't know what to do with them. B, I don't know why I'm having them and C, social services are going to come around knocking at my door if I even mention that I'm having such thoughts could you kind of explain a bit more about that whilst my dog's having a go at the postman (laughs) well so I'd had them um a lot when my daughter um was very little and I had them again with my son and I I was having some NHS therapy after I had my little boy and I finally 
plucked up the courage to say every now and then I think I'm going to there's a window opposite the changing table in my little boy's bedroom and I sort of finally kind of stutteringly said to this therapist I I do worry that I'm going to throw the baby out the window and she could not have been less phased <laughs> she went oh no I know what that is don't worry about that and I said oh what? I thought this was the sort of deepest darkest shame of my soul and she went oh no intrusive thoughts that's fine everyone has those and then she oh said gosh. no the, the, the thing to the thing that they look out for as therapists is when people are tempted to act on them. So, you know, if the baby's crying too much and you want to put a pillow over its face and then you find yourself picking up the pillow and standing over there, that's when they start to worry. But in fact, they are, you, and then of course, once I knew what they were called, I could look them up and found, no, it's, it's a way to keep the baby safe. It is your brain giving you these sort of little flashes of what the risks are so that you can avoid them. But of course your brain, doesn't necessarily your kind of reptile brain doesn't necessarily <laughs> distinguish between keeping the baby out of the way of a speeding car and you drowning the baby in the bath on purpose and then running the hot water so your brain just goes this 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 um and once I knew that and once I looked them up I could be a lot more relaxed about them but I had mm. no idea what they were wasn't prepared for them and just thought oh well I'm already sleep deprived I'm already quite ambivalent about motherhood I mean you talk about loving your baby I don't know that I loved my daughter um in those first raw awful few weeks I don't know that I was capable of any bigger emotions and it wasn't personal to her um I don't know that I could have articulated anything. My, I remember being very jealous when my husband, you know, after this awful, grueling, horrendous, you know, several days, my husband holding my daughter and weeping with the emotion of her. And then he took a photo of me holding her and I just looked pissed off. I couldn't <laughs> a smile. And, you know, I love her now to the core of my being. You know, I would, you know, die for her in a heartbeat. But but yeah, so so therefore, when I had these intrusive thoughts, they were very, very frightening because um, I thought it was, mm -hmm. again, tied up with my ability to love and tied up with my kind of um, had a moral dimension. And now I know they didn't at all, um, but I didn't know that at the time. There are so many uh, books. I've, I was reading another one uh, recently that was called um, How I Became a Mother and Lost My Shit. <laughs> um, and it talks, again, very much in terms of like how women sort of can lose their identity and one of the chapters that you wrote uh brick by brick mm -hmm. um talked about how your husband goes back to work yeah and he talks about like this mundane stuff that's happened with his day yeah. and he says how was your day and you said <laughs> it was hard and he said what happened and you said I put her down to sleep and she didn't uh but then she did or I tried giving her apple puree and she might like it I'm not sure oh and then she was sick and I just read this and I was like, oh my God, this is, this is my day. You know, my husband ha goes, goes off to work and he does all this stuff and there's me and he comes home and he's like, you know, what did you do with your day? And I'm like, oh, I did nothing, but I did everything because I kept this baby alive. Yeah. And it's, it's so, like Vicky said, it, you're so seen from these chapters that you write. You're oh, writing. Thank you. I'm so what glad. Other, what other people are too afraid to say and to talk about mm -hmm. and you know this whole you know my body doesn't stop not for one second not even when I'm asleep and have you noticed that I don't sleep well have you you know and it's how when you have a baby everything sort of stops and everyone's like oh my god look at this baby it's amazing oh my god and then after a couple of days or a week or so everyone goes back to work and you're left mm -hmm. with this person and you have to re-establish your identity you have to be someone other than just this person's mum and it's I, I don't think people talk about that enough nothing prepared me for the fact that no. I was this new person now and I was kind of left to my own devices to keep this child alive and bring this child up with love and security and care and warmth but at the same time trying to understand who this new person was this new identity this well how yeah. there's and there's a word that um I think anthropologists use called matrescence the, the yeah. process of becoming a mum which for a while was the working title of the book until I realized that no one would know what it means so no one would <laughs> um, but and I don't know that I've solved that conundrum that you talk about and my children are eight and four I still mm -hmm. don't have this solid sense of myself that I had 
before I became a mother. I still feel as though I was blown apart. Still, I mean, I remember each just a silly little thing, but they're not silly. No, I, you see, I immediately do myself. Down. I remember in the first weeks after having my daughter, nothing fitted me. All my clothes mm-hmm. were either tiny or falling off or wrong in some way because I'd been pregnant in the winter and I had her in the summer. So I was very pregnant. So I had nothing and I couldn't buy any clothes. And because I had this sort of tiny, constantly breastfeeding baby who, and she was one of those babies that went off like a fire alarm, unless I was holding her, maybe my husband for a bit, but then she still had to come back to me. And so I literally couldn't get dressed in the morning. I, you know, I had sort of two outfits in rotation and they were always filthy. And I, you know, I would look in the mirror and just go, I don't, what am I? I don't Mm. really know what or who I am anymore. And, and I found it, profoundly profoundly disturbing and again I was but you're operating in a world where other people you know sometimes feel as though they are finding themselves for the first time Mm. or finding a new self that they adore and again it's very hard to say to people and also because I think I found that because a lot of my pre-baby friends didn't have children at the same time as me I was having to make new friends even as I didn't really know who I was So it's very hard to talk about this stuff or to say that I feel I've lost my identity to people who may not be feeling that. Mm. Mm. It's quite disorientating, isn't it? And it's funny you say that because my little girl's four um, in a few days and there are times I still look in the mirror and I just think that's still not my body. Because your body changes, obviously, before and after you have children. I, I, well, maybe some don't. I know some people just snap right back, don't they? But even now, four years later, I'll look in the mirror and do that comparison of pre-baby me and still that, you know, that's that's still not my body. But, and that's and partly because, you know, sort of post-baby bodies, normal post-baby bodies mm-hmm. aren't necessarily very visible or, you know, they're very visible in those first exciting few weeks when people, you know, famous mm-hmm. people stick them all over Instagram, but not necessarily two, three years down the line. When yeah. you just go, oh, right, this is this is where we are now, is it? OK, Um and again, I think I found that very difficult with my husband that, you know, he's not had this kind of incredible physical experience happen mm. to him. So twice in our case. And I'm, I sort of find myself ongoingly very bitter at where I've ended up. And again, mm. I say this as somebody who, you know, managed to conceive and have two healthy children. And, you know, I'm not in a terrible place with my body. But I am bitter that that he didn't have to undergo this. I I do find it unfair that this is what had to happen for us to have our children. Mm. And he knows this, but certainly in those early years, I don't know how much he felt it. Mm. You, know, you, you can say to somebody till the cows come home, ah, I'm in pain, mm. I'm a mess, I don't look, and they just sort of go, oh, and then they carry on with their day because they have to. But I'm yeah. carrying on with my day in this body, and this body is mm. not right. And I, you that know, is I, so it, true. And I, I find yeah. that you sort of want to go look. I'm going to text you every twenty minutes and say this is this is how often I'm thinking about it. And then, yeah, but also think about it for five minutes out of every twenty. Then maybe we'll be on a par. But you know, that's not a very fair thing to do to someone. <laughs> it's not his fault, but it yeah, it does make me sad. I I know you want to jump in there, Vicky, but I just I don't know if you're going to follow on from this point, and I just want to read this piece of the book which talks about cake (laughs) (laughs) but it said um you know it's and I read this and I was like oh my god yes there was no alcohol not in the first year deprived of sleep we were drunk already no booze for us breastfeeders and no food that was rich or spicy for fear it might unsettle tiny tummies instead there were biscuits and there was cake both served with a generous helping of guilt as we surveyed our new bodies and spoke of our revulsion at each other's while simita- simultaneously urging each other to take another slice. Oh, no, I spoke that... of our revulsion at our bodies and then <laughs> said to everyone else, but you look amazing, as it were. Yeah. You should have some more. I'm disgusting. You should have some more cake. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then you, and then we'd all go, no, you're not. You look great. Cake, 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 cake. And then... Eat more. Eat more. It's yeah. so, that's so real. So real. Go on, Vicky. <laughs> No, no, no. It, it kind of does follow on from what you were saying about um, almost that gendered approach um, to, to parenthood and to, to kind of having a, a child. And in the chapter Bad Mother, you explore about how we often feel like as mums, we're just we don't feel like we're doing enough. You know, we're, we're never going to be good enough. 
And we set these expectations ourselves that are so high that we're just, we're not going to achieve them. It's, it's going to be impossible um, to achieve them. And yet we, we still do it. Mm. Could you talk a bit more about kind of that mother guilt, motherhood and parent guilt and, and why us mums, why generations later, we're still doing it and why we feel mother guilt is a norm and it just comes with the package? Um, I'm, so the, the, the thing I will use to sort of illustrate it, because I'm a fan of real life events kind of illuminating a wider truth, is when um, my daughter was, I think something like five months old, my cousin got married um, and he got married in a fancy function suite in a hotel. And my daughter, you know, very small, so wasn't invited, which I totally understand. Um, and so I said, look, come to the hotel to my husband. We can't stay for the, the kind of the big reception, but I'd like to see him get married. Can you just stand outside with the baby for 20 minutes? I'll watch him get married. Then we'll have a drink and then we'll go home. So I remember passing him to the baby as I went into this reception, um, sorry, into this, into this room in this hotel. And a passing member of staff seeing my husband take the baby said, oh, is he going to hold him? Oh, what a great dad. And so my husband was being praised for holding his baby. That, that's the bar for my, that was the bar for my husband. And my husband was probably slightly taken aback by the sort of sheer level of rage that this, you know, I spent the wedding <laughs> just so angry watching my husband, sorry, my, my cousin get married and just being really pissed off at what just happened. Um, but, the bar for men to achieve successful fatherhood mm. is not the same societally as it is, you know, whereas I, at the same time I was being shouted at for getting on a bus, for having the remedy to get on the bus with the baby in a buggy and the, the baby be crying. You know, some of you people will come up to me and go, you know, your baby's crying. Go, yes, she's, she's just done a poo and we're on a bus and I can't, you, I'm assuming you wouldn't want me to change her on the bus so I don't quite know what you want me to and you know, so I think the difference the, the different societal attitudes towards what makes a good father and what makes a good mother however much you don't want to internalize them we clearly do mm -hmm. and I, I found it very you know I'm a perfectionist I'm a high achiever I sort of assumed that I'd if not ace motherhood, if I just worked hard at it, I could sort that, like other mm -hmm. things that have happened in my life. And of course, that's not how motherhood works. Um, but what I'm interested in, and I still, you know, I sort of explore it a bit in the book, but I still don't necessarily have the answer, is where this kind of image of this perfected mother comes from. Because I'd never mm -hmm. consciously thought about what, the perfect and therefore normal mother should be before I had a child and yet clearly I'd been I mean I talk about her in terms of um a sort of you, you know those sort of um those huge statues you have in dictatorships the sort of the statues they have in North Korea mm. I have this statue inside me of this perfect mother mm. and I've clearly been raising her up since I could remember since conscious thought but I don't know where she's come from Mm. I haven't consciously done it and then suddenly I have a baby and there she is sort of staring at me and raising an eyebrow every time I do something wrong and I'm comparing myself to her and constantly you know my days are just a succession of feeling as though I'm constantly falling short and I don't think mm. that's the same I mean I, I don't like to generalize but for a larger percentage of women compared to that percentage of men. I, I, I don't feel there's that. I don't feel there's this sort of perfected mm. image. I, I always felt that my thoughts were wrong. I, you know, I'm not patient. I'm not loving. I'm not, mm. even if I'm acting patient and loving on the outside, on the inside, I'm still my former distracted, messy, resentful, angry, non-motherly, non-maternal self. And therefore I'm not a good mother. I mm. find that very hard. And I still, I still find it hard. I don't, I don't, I haven't surmounted that. I've just written about it. There's an interesting theory from Amelia Nagoski, and she calls it um, human giver syndrome. And it's basically all, all women 
in society, regardless of if they're mothers or not, are automatically categorized as being carers. So they would take on the caring duty. Now, if you are a mother, it's exacerbated more so that you yeah. are a carer in all facets of your life. That is your purpose. Mm. And society actually puts that on you. Society actually gives you, the, you know, through advertising, through the tasks and the jobs that you can get, you're automatically assumed that you're going to have this caring role because it's innate. And so it's that, that self-perpetuating thing where society has already put you in on that pedestal yeah. as you are carer. And so your choices are limited and it's it's no wonder that we end up thinking to ourselves, you know, I need to be a good carer because that is what is expected of me and that is my role in society. And we just haven't broken that. And yet, uh, growing up, I was educated and taught that that wasn't. Mm. You know, I was, you know, I came blazing out of university thinking, right, well, you know, here we go. I'm equal. I'm... I can do whatever I want. And so then to kind of find yourself shoehorned back into this box. You know, one of the things that I that really gets me and makes me very angry is when men say, I mean, I couldn't do what my wife does. And I think, well, if you had no choice, you would do what your wife does. But maybe your wife doesn't have any choice. Of course you yeah. can do what your wife does. You just don't want to. And you're not wanting to is expressing is giving what your wife is doing some kind of higher moral dimension to get out of doing it yourself and that makes me very angry do you think there's enough out there like one of the things that Vicky and I talk a lot about on this podcast and we've got other ones coming up other episodes coming up where we explore it in more details but social media um is obviously rife currently has been for the last 10 years maybe um do you think there's enough illustration of realistic motherhood expectations out there? Or do you think, because I see a lot of uh, influencers um, out there with their perfect pictures and they don't show the background of it. But then I look at a friend of mine who's a personal trainer and she's had three kids now and she's very much very open. You know, she's put up on her insta stories pictures of her sitting on the stairs breastfeeding her new baby hiding mm. from her other children because she just needs five minutes and i think that's what that's what we need to see more of but do you think there's enough of that enough representation in media overall of this you know we don't need to be perfect we just need to do our best um i think with i mean i i, I can't say that i hugely engage with a lot of the social media because I find it quite difficult. I mean, I, I would say that there's, there's je with social media on a general level, the stuff is always there if you know where to look. The difficulty is that if you've just had a baby, you've not necessarily got the time or the energy to go and find mm -hmm. it. And if the kind of more glossy, glamorized sponsorship, encouraging, branded experience mm -hmm. of motherhood is the one that is at the fore, that's the one that you're more likely to see if you've not gone looking for something else. So, you know, I, I, I'm now, and also I think that there is more support out there than there was say eight years ago um, when I had my daughter. <laughs> I, I would say that of course, with all of these things, when there's money involved, that brings more content. So one, but equally I'm, I'm wary of companies kind of coming in and monetizing the space. So, I mean, you know, you're, you're, so your friend who was breastfeeding on the stairs, having five minutes away you know if she was then advertising some product or whatever then there, there would be more of that kind of post because people will be paid to do them but then I, I don't know that one wants it always to be monetized I mean I would say certainly in kind of sort of consuming television and cinema there's a bit more out there so things like the baby on sky recently was a terrific example um it was sort of comedy horror show um, about um, I don't know if you're aware of it about a woman who <laughs> ends up looking after this kind of monstrous alien killer baby but from the outside it appears to be a baby but it will kill people occasionally and it was terrific because what it did is it explored the kind of ambivalence towards motherhood and the kind of mad situations you find yourself in with a woman who could see the madness of it all so I thought that there's shows like you know there's sorry there's a movie called Prevenge that Alice loaded several years ago about that sense of when you're, and again, it was horror that was a really good filter for it, where she found a way to talk about that sense of 
something your body being taken over by forces that aren't your own and the different ways that people speak to you so and you know, and then of course things like motherland so oh, yeah. and catastrophe so th- there is there is more in that kind of artistic space and I hope that there will be more still just you know if, if nothing else that mothers are people and they can be at the center of the story not kind of orbiting at the periphery I mean you know my experience of mothers in literature was that they kind of sat around long enough to fuck up the main character and then just disappeared and you go but but what (laughs) so maybe the mother could be the main character and now mothers are main characters and, and so I think that's terrific social media I think it's there but you have to go and find it and you're not always in the right state to go and find it and you may see some quite a lot of other stuff on the way along the way which is which is hard I think it's interesting what you're saying about um putting women in the forefront and making it because I I worked what um I watched Working Moms which Mm -hmm. is a Canadian Netflix series which you know explored it at the beginning that series has gone on the kids are growing up um and Motherland in particular was absolutely brilliant at kind of highlighting the franticness and the frazzledness of motherhood um from newborn up to you know school and beyond and I think what it highlighted for me is that, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that these stories are being told to help us mums um, feel seen, for us to feel, you know, we are part of a collective. But it also highlights how the system is still broken towards women, even even school systems where, you know, there's one where um, she's trying frantically to drive her kids to school because the school hours and then she can't find anywhere to park. And it... <laughs> little things like this infrastructure systems they're just not in favor of of working parents holistically but particular mums and i it's interesting i i'm fascinated as to why we can't see this stuff until it happens to us you know i didn't see it till it happened to me i was you know there was a statistic that jumped out of the newspaper the other day that childcare takes up 65 percent of a couple's income mm. that you know that's the the family income is 65 percent of it is going on childcare when you when you you know you've got two kids and that doesn't work no. I, I remember somebody posting on a, my local facebook group a few months ago and i saved the post because she said something like oh i've i had a baby and i'm looking back going back to work and i've just realized i can't because the finances don't work mm-hmm. i can't do it what yeah. what what do I do now what and then yeah. just you know, sort of see a response is going yeah, yeah. but it, it, it's just not interesting to people so I, I, I it's not interesting to people until it happens to them and then suddenly they're like oh fuck that's what yeah. everyone was wanging on about yeah and it's that sense I think that mother's complaints are feminine and tedious and moaning and whining as the people who phoned in when I was on the radio said rather than interesting and societal and important because we were all born and therefore this affects everybody and so yeah I I I mean I I have to say that I couldn't watch Motherland I found it too stressful it was terrific but I it was too much like seeing the difficult parts of my day played back to me at the one part of my day where I wasn't doing that so I could I could and similarly catastrophe but I'm very glad that they exist yeah and it's interesting because the whole um as you said the childcare thing I know a friend of mine who she couldn't afford to go back to work and she just said you know what it's just it's easier if I just stay home um because I can't afford nursery fees so she she took herself out of work because financially it was a better situation and then she had a massive gap in the CV and this is another thing that obviously mums going back to work if they have taken that time off or even often it's a huge thing it's a huge step mm. because you've been invisible for so long it's you know you're a different person you've lost your previous identity and so apologizing for having a child and having that gap in your CV, particularly in fields like higher education, um, in other areas of medicine and so on, those kind of areas where there is a gap in your CV and you've potentially missed out on a changing field is, is mind blowing. And this is a vast percentage of the population who are workers and bringing in money and are helping the economy and helping us. You know, it, it just, it baffles me. Yeah. And, and, you know, things like the sorts of jobs where, as it were, you get your percentage pay rise every year. And so therefore, if you're not in work that year, you, you lose the pay. So, you know, then your pay is lower forever. 
because you had that time out to have children or the the number of women I know and it is pretty much all women who do a three-day week they're paid for a three-day week and they work four days or they're paid for a four-day week and they actually work on the fifth day as well they're just not paid for that and they're having a shitty time frantically frantically trying to do their work and look after their child at the same time Mm. and again it's it's something that I talk about in the book because it makes me very angry is that a lot of women I know and I understand where this comes from because you know to to an extent the same is true of me so I'm so much more productive now than before I had children because you know I really use my time well and I think well yes but we shouldn't have to be that much more productive and then you wonder you know you shouldn't have to I I don't want my there's no I don't want somebody doing brain surgery on me or even fixing my car by somebody who is simultaneously looking after a crying baby and fielding messages on the class WhatsApp. Therefore, I shouldn't want that in anything. And Mm. I don't want that for that woman who's doing it. Um, I don't want to have to be proud of my productivity. I would like to have the right amount of time to do all the different things that I need to do in my day. And therefore, have better mental health, better physical health be a better person for my family, be a better role model. I don't want to be the role model of, for my children of the knackered woman who just about mm. keeps the plates spinning. I want to be the role model of the woman who is calm and, and feels okay because I feel like the day's challenges are achievable without me having some kind of breakdown during mm. or at the end of them because I'm being asked to do too much. and the kind of this having it all superwoman that we're expected to be and that we aspire to be is incredibly damaging because it's Mm. it then makes it very hard to go well no I can't and nor should I be expected Mm. to do all of this stuff simultaneously this is this is frankly fucking absurd yeah and I wouldn't have put up with it before I had a baby but now because of this image of kind of perfected womanhood I'm expected to do it all at the same Mm. time well no fuck off Uh, again hard hard to say and hard to say to people who haven't had children or to men I uh, recently in my sort of breastfeeding haze of those early days where everyone says oh my god you can have so much time pick out some box sets to watch and I'm like oh okay and when it came down to it I was so tired that I was like you know what I'm just gonna watch Desperate Housewives again um I haven't watched it for years and years and years and um I was saying to Vicky the other day I always used to see myself as like very much going out having fun very much like a Susan or a Gabrielle and now I'm seeing Lynette in a completely different light um and honestly the way she is trying to juggle four children and like live her life and how her husband goes off and he's like going to take this new job and he's going to be away five nights a week and she's Mm. like no so she then becomes the breadwinner and goes back to work and like you were talking about the gap in the cv and she's been interviewed and they say oh you've got this big gap in your cv and she said yes well I was raising four children and they were like okay well that's fine but don't let it affect your work and you know it's it's this whole expectation level isn't it and I think it's so hard for women to to be the the vision of motherhood that they want to be and to meet societal expectations. And I I'm very aware of the time and how much time we've been talking to you. It's been fantastic. I could just I just <laughs> want to keep reading this book and keep looking at <laughs> because there are so many relatable elements to it. But we always give our guests something called the final sip, which is your opportunity to just put across your sort of final words on your book and the subject of motherhood and just what would you like to leave our listeners with oh gosh what an interesting question as I say I never meant to write this book but now I have I feel tremendously lucky to have been given the, it turns out I needed to be given permission to write it. I needed someone to come to me and say, I think this could be a book. And then I thought, oh, right, I've, I'm allowed to speak. And now, of course, it makes me really angry that I didn't feel that I could give myself permission to speak. Mm. And I suppose what I hope is that this book, it won't articulate the experiences of every mother, nor should it. But what I hope is that it lifts the kind of silence 
around motherhood. I hope that men read it. I hope that people who don't or may never have children read it. Mm. And I hope that no one else feels they have to wait for permission to speak. I feel very strongly that that's what this book is for me. It's, it's a way of saying our experiences are not just valid, they are urgent and they are important and they deserve to be heard. And that's what my book is. Thank you so much. Thank the you. beginning line of the book is, my story is unremarkable. Mm. Um, I would disagree because the way you've told it is absolutely remarkable. It's oh, absolutely fantastic. So, so it's don't forget to scream. I don't know why I'm holding it up at the screen, because <laughs> it's the podcast, uh, but don't forget to scream. We'll put the um, links onto our podcast page, website, and all the uh, social media going out as well. But Marianne, thank you. Thank so, you so, so thank much. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's been, it's been absolutely brilliant. Um, and if listeners, if you like what you hear, be sure to listen to our back catalogue. Lots of interesting and taboo subjects we've covered there and coming up as well. Um, and if you'd like to support us, then we do have a supporters page on our website and you can buy us a coffee or tea or tea bag or <laughs> takeaway or gin and tonic or anything. glass of wine for a second. Yeah, yeah and anything. Um, We're putting, oh, we should just change it from buy us a coffee to buy us anything. Buy us anything, yeah. <laughs> brilliant well thank you very much for joining us today and i'm gonna do it again it's good night from me <laughs> it's good night from me <laughs> thanks everyone thank you bye-bye bye